The question has come to us for consideration today during our lesson. Why is homosexuality wrong? Why is homosexuality wrong? Um, there, if there is a topic that is important for us to consider today and a topic that I wouldn't necessarily gravitate to, but one that I would admit we need to talk about and discuss and be ready to prepare, be prepared to discuss and consider when discussing things with our friends and our family, our loved ones, and also with those who are members of the church and consider how we even discuss it here, it is this topic of homosexuality. Um, it, is, it is a topic that I do think needs to be addressed with care. Um, and in, in some ways, I'd even say delicately. Um, but at the same time, what I'm going to try and do during the sermon today is to simply address the question of why is homosexuality wrong and and just put it out there. And this, what I would say is that the, the thoughts of this sermon today are really the underpinnings of what, what we really believe and really are going to, as Christians I should say, and therefore how we're going to address other issues and topics that kind of come along, other discussions that will come up in regards to this topic. So, wanting to know what the Bible says about homosexuality or why it's wrong, and I said, I, you know, any of us can come up with um, reasons for or against on our own, and I'm not, I'm, I don't care about that. That is not my job. My job is to go to Scripture, and our job as Christians is to go to Scripture and find out what it says. Um, sometimes our passions can get the best of us. And we need to slow down at times and see what does God say on a subject and consider what does the Bible say in its entirety on a particular subject so that we know how we should, um, how we should think and therefore kind of let that to be the guide then to how we should feel. Let's let God wor- God's word, let God who is our designer be the one who dictates how we should act, what we should do in this life. And so I hope that this sermon, simple as it may be, I hope it does that today. And I hope it makes all of us think in, in varying degrees in, in many different ways. Um, what do we truly believe? And then how are we going to act um, in this life pertaining to sexuality? And how will we act pertaining to addressing homosexuality? How do we think about it even? So the easiest one, then, if you want to get an answer on any particular topic, the man who is respected, that all people come to for answers and respect as, as a good man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was the Son of God. Even people who don't, uh, who don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, they'll say, Jesus was a good man what does he say about things? You know, they'll respect what he says. There's a lot of things that Jesus said that people like. So I want to ask the question, first of all, what does Jesus say about sex? So this is the beginning of the question. And the closest thing I can come to, it's, it's, and I'll admit that in, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is responding to a question about divorce and remarriage. He's, but he's talking about um, divorce in particular here. 
And so we're going to learn about sex from this passage. And I don't know of another passage that Jesus discusses uh, that really comes close to discussing sexuality besides this passage. And he does address things in other places, but they're very similar. This is a good place to go to. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. So let's hear what Jesus has to say how he is following up with a particular question that's given to him and, um, and see what we can learn from it. So Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse number 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together Let man not separate. Let man not put asunder. These words, they ring familiar in our ears because we have heard them all through our lives. We have heard them spoken at weddings. We have heard Jesus being quoted and talk about the two becoming one flesh. And it is a man and a woman leaving father and mother, and uh, the two become one flesh. They are united together. So, first of all, just I've got these three points just to think about. First of all, notice that Jesus says, go back to the beginning. And not specifically his word, but he says, haven't you read that at the beginning? So Jesus is saying to them, if you want to consider an answer to this, per- per- this question pertaining to divorce... He says, go back to the beginning, go back to the main thing, go back to the way it began, the way it was created, go back to the beginning. And so I think that's what we need to do is to go back to the beginning and see how things are supposed to be. Um, Divorce was not a good thing because it deviated from the way things were established at the beginning. It is not a good thing. It deviates from the way God designed it, the way it was at the beginning. So point number two is consider God's design. God's design. You go all the way back to the beginning, you find out the way God designed things, the way he created, the way it was meant to be. And notice, this is even before the fall. This is before the fall. It was one man, one woman, united as one flesh. And that this is a quote from Genesis chapter 2. So you can go back and you can read through that chapter and you can see that when God made them, he made man, then he made woman, and they were to be united as one flesh. And Jesus is, is specific here. It's, it's this idea of one man, one man, and one woman becoming one flesh. And so number three then, I, w- I would add this thought then to do not devi- deviate. Here's a command that comes with it. Do not deviate from God's design. 
So as we think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, he said, so they are no longer, so, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, when I, when I think of this point and the way that I have posed something else on the paper here for you to consider, I wrote, don't undo what God has done, right? And that makes sense. We don't, if God does something, we don't want to undo it. The phrase that, this really is a phrase that kind of came to me when I was um, raising my children. I haven't said it in a long, long time. I don't remember if I said it much with Luke, but I remember at some point with William, I started having to say, don't undo what daddy's done. You know, it's kind of, and I can't think of any particular instance that I had to say it, but it seemed like with everything, it started becoming a regular phrase. Please don't undo what daddy has done. You know, all right, I just tied your shoes, got your shoes on, we're ready to go. All right, let's go. And where are your shoes? Please don't undo what daddy has done. You know, you get him dressed in the morning, all of a sudden, well, where's your shirt? What happened? Don't undo what daddy has done. Put something in front of him to, to get ready to eat, and then all of a sudden it's somewhere else. I, you know, I'd, I can't think of any particular instance, but it seemed like all these little things, it's just, all right, if daddy does something, don't undo it, please. Daddy is trying to help you. Daddy's trying to get you ready. And that's how we should do. If daddy does something, we don't want to undo it. Right? Isn't that what we do? Don't undo what daddy has done. That's a good little, uh, good little phrase and some good, good, uh, learning that our children can go through. Mommies can use that too, right? But when we, as the authority, we as the one who is in charge, we as the one who are directing and guiding and leading and trying to build a life, when we do something, don't undo it. The things we do have reason and purpose. Don't undo it. And I ask us to consider today that if you go back to the beginning like Jesus asked us to, that... We go back to the beginning. We see God's design. We see that he made them male and female. And he says that a man and a woman should come together and be united, become, actually become one flesh. And this is, there's a lot to discuss. Well, what on earth does that even mean? You know, there's a lot to discuss there. And I think it's a spiritual there's a lot of spiritual stuff going on there and becoming one. Becoming one flesh. It is, it's becoming, you know, so there's a lot of things to discuss there, but the point is it's a man and a woman coming together as one. So if God designs something some way, if God creates something in a particular way, do we want to deviate from it? And this is, this is a point, you know, you read all the way through Scripture. If God says something, if God does something, if God establishes a principle, do you want to deviate from what God says, from what God establishes? Now, if you're a respecter of God and you think that there is a God and you think that this word that I, that I hold in my hand before me, this Bible, actually conveys the words of God, then you have to say, all right, I'm, I don't want to deviate. We learn from Nadab and Abihu who, who introduced strange fire. And God had said, you know, I gave you specific instructions how to approach me in my temple. And here are the, here are the two priests coming. 
And they do something different. It was, that's the idea of strange fire. It was different fire. It was unauthorized. It's not the way that God had asked it to be done. And they died instantly. Fire came forth on that first instance of them approaching that tabernacle. Fire came forth and consumed them. They died. We flip ahead to uh, the New Testament and we see people who are um, bringing, and we, with Ananias and Sapphira, and they're bringing some some gifts, some offerings to the church, and they had had examples before them of people honestly giving and, and uh, wanting to help others. It seems like they came with uh, some other uh, design to their giving, and God struck them dead. They were lying to the Holy Spirit about what they had done. They lied. That is not the way things are to be done, and so God struck them dead. So we have these examples, and all through Scripture you can just, well, if God says something, do I really want to deviate from what he says? The answer is no. Of course, though, we're a fallen group of folks. Adam and Eve are the very first ones who show us this idea. God said something, he designed the... The, um, the garden in a specific way and put one tree in there that wasn't to be eaten of. They do, that was the plan. Don't eat from it. They deviated from what God had said and they suffered for it. They ought not have done that. It's the essence of sin. And so we're sinners in this fallen state and uh, we need to turn back to God and rely upon him and seek to do things his way, understanding that as sinners we don't always figure out things correctly, right? We're often led away. We're often tempted to do other things. So we have to search God's word to make sure that we don't deviate from his plan. And the other thing I do want to say is that, you know, with this plan for one moment, one man, one woman united as one flesh is, you know, Jesus emphasizes the point of not undoing it, what it, the design, when he said, when it's, the words we come up with, that we think about from what is said here, until death do us part. Let man not put asunder until death do us part. And that comes from not only uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, but it's also in 1 Corinthians 7 that, you know, death, at death, man and, you know, this marriage contract, it's ended. It's over. But it's the way it's supposed to be is that only the marriage contract is only ended at death. That's the way it is supposed to be. Unfortunately, we mess with it and mess things up in other ways too. But the, God's plan, God's desire is one man, one woman, united as one flesh until death parts them. Until death parts us. That's the plan. Uh, okay, I'll move on. I had to... There's, there's, it brings up so much discussion and, and, and thoughts, but we need to just move here with the simple stuff. So that's the basis. It's just to establish what was God's plan, what did he establish, what, what is it that he has designed sexuality to do to be. Okay, so let's move on. So why is homosexuality wrong? Because it deviates from God's design. Just as other uh, immoral sexual acts deviate from the way that God planned and designed things to be, it, homosexuality is one of the ways that we can deviate from God's design for marriage, for true um, good sexuality that is and, and sex to be experienced between a husband and a wife 
um, bringing them together in a wonderful and joyful way. That is what God designed sex for. Okay, so there are some passages here that are listed to kind of confirm that God shows that a deviation um, in regards to homosexuality, if someone commits homosexual acts, that is one of the ways that deviates from God's design. One man, one woman for life. So let's look at Genesis 18, and I think a lot of these passages are familiar that you'll probably come to and think about. And we just need to read them to reestablish what, what God says, what God's word establishes about um, the particular uh, fornication, uh, sexually immoral act of homosexuality. So in Genesis chapter 18, and first I want to look at verse number 20, and this is the instance where uh, Abraham is visited by these three men, one of which is uh, is the Lord himself, and then these two others are um, angels that are going to go on down to Sodom and Gomorrah. So chapter 18, verse number 20 of Genesis, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Okay, so we go over to chapter 19 then, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. Um, And consider what is spoken of here, and then we're going to turn to Jude 7 and kind of confirm that the image and the picture that we create, I think all of us will create from this passage that it's confirmed by the New Testament. The very brother of Jesus, actually, his name's Jude. So Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 19, verses 1 through 13. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way in early morning. No, they answered, We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And literally, so that we can know them, which is a euphemism for sex. Verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man, who have never known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied, and they said, This fellow came here as an alien. Now they're talking about Lot. This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. 
But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So here are men, and it it appears uh, at a simple reading and that they want to that these people are so have turned so far from God that it's it's not just that they don't want to show hospitality to the man to the men they don't want to be a host and do good to these visitors who've come to town they don't want to follow Lot's example but they want to have sex with these men and they seem to not or they are not going to take no for an answer so these men are very sinful young and old they're very sinful and no matter which way you look at it it is they are horribly sinful um and now let's go and read jude and verse number seven jude only has one verse and it's the 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 book right before the book of revelation so it's easy to find and i do hope you'll you'll look and consider um, you know, all of these passages and consider the, the importance of them. Because even this passage that we just read in Genesis, some people will try and turn into, well, the sin wasn't homosexuality. The sin was that they weren't going to show hospitality. And I say, well, that's definitely true. <laughs> they, they were not going to show hospitality. Or they'll t- say that the sin was going to be the forcible sex upon these men but not necessarily homosexuality itself. And I'd say, well, rape in any instance is certainly also going to be, um, certainly going to be a, um, a big sin also, to say it lightly and with, you know, just obviously a great sin. But homosexuality is part of their sin. Um, Jude Verse number 7, and you'll notice if you read more of this passage in this context, the idea of people, I look at it, verse number 4, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. So these are people that are coming in trying to change things, trying to change what you know and understand, trying to get you to believe something different than what Jesus Christ himself would want you to believe. And so uh, I'll go ahead and read verse, uh, uh, verse 5 and then on down to verse number 7. Though you already know all this, I want you to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe... So when people don't believe, they'll be destroyed. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. And you might remember now that we read this verse last week, talking about demons. Talking about where did Satan come from. 
And he was a fallen angel. And so, so listen what happens to the angels when they deviate from God's design and God's plan. So angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the, the great day. So again, the thought is, if you change something that God has clearly said, if you do something clearly against what God had, has asked you to do or designed you to do, the angels being the instance here, everlasting judgment. And then verse 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Fornication and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So clearly what we know is true that that God was going to punish these folks in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we learn why. And it's for sexual immorality. For this broad, broad word that means just sexual perversion. Sexual perversion. They had gone their own ways doing what they want. They were deviating from what God had established to be. And Jesus reminded us of that. One man, one woman for life. And they were going and doing anything they wanted. Sexual perversion. Anything you want. That's why when we get to the this next passage in Leviticus uh, chapter 18 and into chapter 20... All, they, they have to list all of the perversions. It's every form of perversion. Anything that deviates from one man, one woman for life is dealt with here. Almost everything. So let's go back to Leviticus then. So we saw an example of sexual perversions that, um, that included the desire of all these men to, uh, to rape these other men who were visitors to town. But let's look in Leviticus now when God clearly establishes his law. Genesis 18 and verse number 20. And again, this is, you can read before, you can read after. All of these are deviations from God's initial plan. Verse number 20 says, um, excuse me, 18.22 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. So God makes it clear to his people after he has brought him out of Egypt, that what is acceptable and what is not, and lying with a man as one lies with a woman, is not acceptable for the men. Chapter 20, verse number 13. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And now if you think God isn't being fair to homosexuals, just read above and below and you'll find out all of the ways that he punishes all sinners. All deviations um, that, are, that are made contrary to the plan, one man, one woman, for life. So God is clear that homosexuality is a sin. It's supported again in this passage. And now let's jump ahead to the New Testament. And we'll go to the book of Romans. And we'll look at chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, we're going to see this idea of what is either translated as natural function 
or natural relations, dependent upon your translation. And I, uh, I don't remember if there were other ways of designating it, but it is in terms of what is normal sexual relations. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error or their perversion. So again, it's, it's taking what was established at the beginning and changing it to something else and trying to claim, as you read on, trying to claim that there's nothing wrong with it. They, kind of, they show approval to those things, even though in their heart they know it's wrong, even though it is evident from all the things that God has made and done that it is wrong. Okay, so other passages can be used to support this, and we can see that just from as you just consider the beginning, the way things were established, that homosexuality is wrong, and I just ask you to consider the language that I'm using today. It is wrong because it deviates from what God had established at the beginning. It deviates from God's design. But I think we need to, to turn and look at um, the passage that was read as our, um, by, uh, as our scripture reading for today, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11, it further supports the idea that just simply homosexuality is a, um, it's, it's just one form of sexual immorality. But we learned a few other things about it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, beginning verse number 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, you hear, the wicked won't get to heaven. The wicked. Well, how do you define wicked? You know, you define it whatever way you want, but Scripture is going to define it here. Here's some examples. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or the effeminate nor idolaters. Oh, excuse me. I'm, I'm sorry. I added something there. Neither the sexually immoral. So that fornication, that big broad word of any deviation from, from God's design. Neither sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So homosexuality is one of the one of a list of sins here. Okay, it's, it's in this list of sins. It's in a list among other sins. So on my outline there, I have homosexuality is a sin among other sins. It's a sin. So I'm, I'm tempted to say that it's just a sin along with just other sins, but I don't ever want to say that some sin is just a sin. They're all bad, and it's actually the case. You read down in, in the same chapter, verse 18, it seems like the sexual sins have a particular import. They're a little bit different from others, and, and they have an effect that they're, they're on the body, they're against the body. So whatever that might mean, whatever you take that to mean, it would be another discussion. But they're a little different than the others. But it is still a sin. 
And other sins are listed here too, but these sinners, homosexuals, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Neither are people who are greedy going to inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and that puts it in perspective. You know, drunkards are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we need to ask ourselves, boy, that kind of puts it into perspective. It's, it's a sin, just like other sins. But we love verse 11 because it says, that is what, and such were some of you, or that is what some of you were. Oh, I, let, I, I apologize. I didn't realize I'd let the time get away from me this far. That's what some of you were. So we're working on wrapping this up. Some of us were sinners. Some of us were things in this list. Some of us were greedy. Some of us did worship idols. Some of us did participate in homosexual acts. Some of us did any of these things. And then it says, but you were washed. But you were washed and you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. And that's just a wonderful thing. So the second point here is homosexuals can be saved just like other sinners can be saved. Okay? They can be saved. And in, in, in relationship to the idea that some of, that's what some of you were, I do think that homosexuality is something that can be put in the past and be put behind so that, hey, that was the life that I once had and I was once a sinner and I once did these things, but in Jesus Christ, it's all gone. It's done. And I am no longer a sinner. Now I'm sanctified and I am a saint. And I've talked to you all before about this idea that, hey, we don't, we admit that we sin. But we cling to this word called saint. We don't cling to the word called sinner. We don't go around boasting, well, I'm a sinner. We say, I'm a sinner. And I stand here before you today and say, with great regret that I still sin. I hate it, though, when I sin. But praise be to God, I can cling to this new thing that I am. And that is one who has been sanctified by Jesus Christ. I've been washed, sanctified, set apart. No longer in that sinful state with all the other sinners. I've been sanctified, set apart from the world so that now I can live a new life in Christ Jesus. Um, so I do ask you to consider this idea that when somebody makes the argument, well, I was born that way or they were born that way. Just consider, you know, how do you, how do you apply that argument to, that, to greed or to drunkenness or to anything else in that list? How does it apply? How does it work? Because you've got to have a logical argument. You've got to be able to, to back it up. So think about that. Because that really is, when somebody says, I was born this way, and, and I hear people struggle, you know, it's, this isn't easy. I, didn't, I don't want this, maybe, even what they're saying. You know, I don't know, but... You got to consider the arguments and not just find some easy way out. Consider God's word, um, and I think going back to that idea of the fall when things went downhill, even our DNA went downhill and started falling apart. That affects how we view these sins and drunkenness and uh, homosexuality and all, any number of sexual sins. We've got to consider our fallen state in this argument. We've got to consider, if you're willing to go to God's word, then that's part of the discussion. So, but the neat thing is, is that sinners can be saved. 
The neat thing is, is that a homosexual, a homosexual can be saved. A, a homosexual can know the love of Christ Jesus. And how is that possible? How can that possibly be? Because sometimes when we see other people who are different from us, we exclude ourselves. And we need to think about, well, what does Christ want us to do? With homosexuals, if that, somebody, that, that way of life or that way of thinking is very different from you how, do you, how do you think about them? How do you approach people? What do you do and what does Jesus want you to do? That's part of the discussion. Well, I can tell you this, is that homosexual, homosexuals can be saved. And why is that true? And to look at the bottom of the outline here, just very simply, from any number of verses, we can know that Jesus loves sinners and died on the cross to save the world from our sins, to demonstrate his wonderful love for us. So, isn't that true? God, for God so loved the world, my tie, I'm wearing it on purpose today, for God so loved the world, so for God so loved all of the sinners in the world, praise God, because I'm, I was one of those sinners. Praise God, now I've been changed by the grace of Jesus, by his blood I've been washed, and I've been sanctified, and I've been justified. Praise be to God. So sinners can be saved. Homosexuals can be saved. And God not only says that they can be saved, but that he wants them saved. He went to the cross to die for sinners, all sinners. And so we need to consider how much do we love homosexuals? How much do we love drunkards? How much do we love the greedy? How much do we love those who worship idols? How much do we love adulterers who go out and cheat on their husbands or their wives? How much do we love those people? Those people that are hard sometimes for us to love. Don't you think it would be a little challenge for God to love sinners? It is. Because I know it's a challenge for him to love me at times. But how much do we love sinners? How much do we love homosexuals? Jesus wants them to know Jesus Christ. And he wants them to come to him. So if you're not a Christian today, I ask you to consider just the truth. And consider Jesus Christ. And ultimately... In this short life, I will tell you that joy is only found in him. And it's not found in, in any particular partner, in any particular job, in any particular thing or activity or whatever. Joy, eternal peace, it's found in Jesus. So I ask you, if you're not a Christian today, to turn from dark sinful ways and to come to the light of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus and be washed, and be sanctified, be justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit of our God. If anybody needs to come to Christ today, won't you please come as we stand together and sing. Yeah.